0: Hi, this is Episode 6 of the Silmarillion Seminar. Before we start, though, I have a big announcement about the Silmarillion Seminar itself. As you know, we're quite a bit behind in posting episodes, but the seminar has continued to meet weekly all year so far. In the live class, we're now up to Chapter 21 of the Quinta Silmarillion, of Turin Turambar. Now, I'm not just telling you this in order to taunt you with the knowledge of all the episodes you haven't gotten to hear yet. I'm telling you this because from now on, thanks to my friends at the Middle-Earth Network radio station, you're going to be able to listen to the seminar sessions live and even participate. We will now be broadcasting the seminar live every Wednesday evening from 9.30 to 11.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on the Middle-Earth Network radio. Now, I won't be able to take live audio contributions from outside the seminar room, but you can still get a question or comment in if you would like to. While you're listening, log in to My Middle Earth and go to the group page of the Silmarillion Seminar. If you have something to add or to ask, just post it on the wall of the Silmarillion Seminar group there, and the multitasking wizard, Dave Kale, will try to transmit your comment to the live discussion. I can't promise to get in every question or comment, of course, but we'll do what we can within our time slot. So tune in this week and in the weeks to come and join in the discussion. Oh, I should also add that the broadcast will have no effect on the uploading of these episodes to the podcast feed. That will proceed as usual, so even if you miss a live episode, you will still be able to download it from my podcast or website a little down the road. Anyway, back to today's episode, in which we discuss Chapter 5 of the Quintus of Eldemar and the Princes of the Eldaliai. The seminar participants decided to name this episode, Who's On First?, Also, this seminar started with a fun moment, which I am about to explain. Okay, so I managed to screw up the beginning of our session this week. We started on time and launched right into discussion, but I cleverly forgot to press record on my recording software. The first half hour of our discussion, therefore, ended up getting lost. Now, the good news is that I opened this session with a longish little mini lecture on names, which I think I can recreate reasonably well. Here goes. Although we may find all of the names of the different groups of elves although we may find all the names of the different groups of elves kind of dizzying we must remember that the divisions of the elves was of crucial importance to tolkien Recall that in the preface to The Lord of the Rings, Tolkien talked about these stories coming from a desire to create the necessary background of history for the Elvish languages that he was designing. Um, So this is, in one sense, the crux of the whole story, um, because, of course, this division of the Elves, some of them staying over here and some of them going over to Valinor and then some of them coming back, um, this is how that historical background worked out for the distinguishing features of uh, the Elvish languages that Tolkien was creating. Um, Now, I'm not saying that this is the most important part of the whole story, sort of objectively understood, but it's the central part of the initial premise from Tolkien's perspective. Now, the names of the different groups of elves can be pretty maddening for some people. I know a lot of people get really dizzy when they try to keep all this stuff straight. So I want to go through it a little bit. Now, the initial division is generally okay. Okay. The first division of the elves that we have is between the Eldar and the Avari. So the Avari are the ones who decide to stay. The Eldar are the ones that decide to go uh, to follow Orome to Valinor. So the Avari means unwilling. They stay behind. The Eldar, the people of the stars, they go along. That's usually fine for people. Um, Then we have the subdivision into the three major groups of the elves that go along with the Valar to Valinor. And that usually people can keep straight, too. We have the Vanyar and the Noldor and the Teleri. Okay, fine. Even if we th- sort of think of the two basic categories into which all elves fall into, either the Calaquendi or the Moraquendi, that is the elves of the light or the elves of the darkness, that's the, even that's not too difficult. That is, it's pretty easy to remember the Calaquendi or the elves of the light. And it just means if you've been to Valinor and seen the trees when they were in bloom, you're Calaquendi. Everybody else, Moraquendi. Okay, whatever. Not a big deal. When we start getting into what seems like the endless subdivision of the Teleri as they move forward, this is where people really start to lose it. Some of them become Sindar, some of them become Nandor, some of them are still called Teleri, some of them are called the laiquendi some become the Philothrum. some name themselves the Egloth, the Forsaken People. Um, I would advise you here is pay attention to the events not just to the names themselves. If you think of this just only as a kind of a flowchart, if you if you think of this only as a list of names, it's just really confusing. Um, but again, what what I think is important here is not necessarily the names, but the events. Um, we see that talking that people get names and places get names and groups of people get names often to mark an event. Um, you know, it's, a, it's to, to, to note a, a very particular aspect of their identity at that particular time. Uh, take the Egloth, for instance. Now, you don't really need to remember that, these, that this subgroup of the Teleri called themselves the Egloth, the Forsaken People. Remember, they're the ones that stay behind uh, looking for Elwë. Uh, who's going to become Thingol because he's, remember, off, stuck in stasis, uh, staring into the beauty of Melian's face for uh, an undetermined but quite long period of time. Um, now, again, we don't need to remember like Eglath, Eglath, Egloth, because the name's never going to come up again. What's important here is that this moment, uh, this moment of naming, especially since it's self naming to see what it tells us about them, about their situation and outlook, that the abandonment of them by their Lord, their apparent loss of their Lord was so important to them that they not only changed their destination and stopped the, the, the journey to Valinor, but also gave themselves this name to commemorate their situation of being forsaken by their Lord. So clearly that should draw our attention to how important that thing is, even if we don't remember exactly what the name is. Um, one other, uh, I, I want to get to the whole, the princes of the Eldalier section, that is to the actual names of the people in Finway's house. Um, though first one last thing that I want to clarify, um, Tol Eressëa, the Lonely Isle and Elvenhome are the same place. This is often very confusing for people. Um, the island, when the, uh, when the island gets drawn over to Valinor and gets rooted to the ground with the Teleri on it, um, still out away from the coast of Valinor. That is Tol Eressëa, the Lonely Isle, which is called Elvenhome. So I just wanted to make sure to clarify that. Now, names. Here we're talking about Finway's house, Finway being the lord of the Noldor. Now... Again, don't try to make lists. I mean, you can if you're really good at it. That's cool. But often people get lost in trying to memorize long lists of names. Not every character is equally important. So what what I want to do now, just as far as your first reading of The Silmarillion and stuff goes, I want to draw your attention to the names of characters that you really do need to remember. Ones that are going to become important later on in the story, which you're going to need to keep track of. Um, So... Finway's house. We start, of course, the big first issue in Finway's house is the major divide between Finway's first son, Feanor, and his second two sons, Fingolfin and Fenarfin. Uh, Fingolfin and Fenarfin are the children of the same mother that F- Finway gets married twice. Um, and they and their sons are kind of in the same camp. So we've got the Feanor people and the Fingolfin and Fenarfin people. Now, of the sons of Feanor, Feanor has seven sons. And, uh, and, you know, throughout the rest of the story, we're going to have the sons of Feanor and the people of Feanor over here, and the descendants of Fingolfin and Finarfin kind of joined together over on the other side. In the Feanor camp, of his seven sons, there are only really four that you, that you really need to remember, I think, anyway. Um, Mythros, who's the, who's the eldest, and he's very important. And what's really interesting about Mythros is that actually he's a pretty good guy. Um, many of the sons of Feanor are pretty bad apples, but Mythros really is not Maglor, also, the two, so those two M names are good to remember. Maglor, his claim to fame, he's the second greatest elven musician of all time, and also a pretty good guy. Um, now you also get Kelagorm and Kurufin. Kelagorm and Kurufin are not good guys. They're pretty bad guys, and they cause a lot of trouble, and we'll come back and see some of that later on. But each is also kind of memorable for a special thing. Kellegorm is a hunter. He's one of the greatest hunters ever, and he hangs out with Arome a lot over in Valinor. And we will see uh, that becoming relevant, especially the very special hunting dog, Huon the Hound, that he brings with him over from Valinor. Um, And Curufin is a craftsman, um, which is very significant because he is the father of Celebrimbor. Celebrimbor, you may remember from the Lord of the Rings, is the elf of Eregion, who is sort of the head of the whole Rings of Power project. He's the guy who forges the three elven rings uh, and is really sort of in charge of the whole thing. uh, So... Celebrimbor is the son of Curufin, son of Feanor. Curufin is a great craftsman, but not at all a nice guy. Um, And so, again, we will meet both Celegorm and Curufin later on. Those those are, as I say, the main ones in the Feanor camp that you need to keep track of. Um, In the Fingolfin-Fenarfin camp, um, which, as I said, is pretty much one relatively homogeneous group the primary people you need to keep track of there are four big ones that i would urge you to remember even if you forget everybody else the first is fingen fingen is the heir to the high kingship he's the oldest son of fingolfin who is the elder of those two brothers so uh, soon after finway fingolfin is going to take over as high king and the kingship from him is going to pass to Fingon, his son Okay, his, his oldest son, Fingon, is Gilgoad's father. Gilgoad, who is the Elven king at the Battle of the Last Alliance, Fingon is his dad. That's why. That's why Gilgoad uh, is going to end up being the High King of the Noldor at the time of the Last Alliance because he's going to inherit it uh, eventually through Fingon, his dad. So Fingon is one. Turgon is the second one. Turgon is Fingon's younger brother. They're both sons of Fingolfin. Turgon is the founder of the elven city of Gondolin. Gondolin is really important. You'll remember there are references to Gondolin even back in The Hobbit. Um, So the the hidden city of Gondolin uh, and its eventual fall... Um, are, gonna be, are a major, major story uh, in the Silmarillion. And Turgon is really important because he's the one who designs and builds Gondolin. That's his whole thing. So Fingon and Turgon, really important. The third is Finrod. Finrod is the eldest son of Finarfin. He's called Felagund, uh, which means Master of Caves. And he's the founder of another one of those major realms in Middle-earth that's, that we're going to come back to a lot, uh, called Nargothrond. Finrod is going to be a major player in a lot of the rest of the stories. Everybody likes Finrod. Um he's he is he is very cool. Um so we will, see him, we will see him a lot. Fingon, Turgen, and Finrod. And the fourth should be pretty easy to remember, and that's Goadriel. Goadriel is Finrod's little sister. Um, so she's there. She will be taking part in this. In the Silmarillion, Goadriel's not going to be a hugely major character. She'll come up a couple times. Um, she's not going to be a really major player, though, of course, it's, it's interesting to keep track of her and to see where she came from and some of her background, um, for those of us who know her from The Lord of the Rings. Anyway, so these are the big four. If you remember them, and forget the rest, not a big deal. Um, Now, the only reason to distinguish, the only reason that it's important really at all, um, who's the son of Fingol, who who are the children of Fingolfin, and who are the children of Finarfin, is basically because of who their moms are. Finarfin marries the daughter of Olwe, the king of the Teleri, after Fingol goes away. So, therefore, when the Noldor returned to Middle-earth, the children of Thanarfin, and only the children of Thanarfin, are related by blood to Thingol. Olwe and Elwe are brothers. Thingol is Elwe. Thingol and Olwe, the, the king of the Teleri over in Valinor, are brothers. So... Finarfin marries Thingol's niece. Therefore his kids are close blood kin to Thingol himself and the rest of the, 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 the Teleri, now called Sindar, who live over in Middle Earth. So that's gonna factor into several of the stories that we see later on. So therefore that's but that again, that's really the only reason that it matters which one of those. Other than that, the sons of Fingolfin and Finarfin always get along, they're always on the same side. Um So, uh, you know, that doesn't get too complicated. Now, in addition to these names and sort of going through the names, there was one other major topic that we discussed before I noticed that I wasn't recording and finally pushed the stupid button. We were talking about the length of time that elves in general and the Teleri in particular take in crossing the Great Lands, a.k.a. the main continent of Middle-earth. For one thing, we need to note that we have no idea how much time it actually took. There were almost no indications of the passing of years. There are almost no indications of the passing of years in the narrative, and since the elves do not really age or grow old, they don't actually seem to take any notice of that kind of thing. However, they clearly do linger more than is really necessary. Even the Vanyar and the Noldor enjoy their tour of Middle-earth, it seems, and although they are unified and set on their Valinorian destination, they too are in no enormous rush to streak across the continent. The Teleri, however, are another story entirely. They take a really long time, and many of them never get there at all. The Teleri make several long stops, and each time they do, they leave a big chunk of their people behind. Now, what I would emphasize about this is that we shouldn't be too hasty in our interpretation of the slowness of the Teleri. Later on, the Teleri will be accused of being faint-hearted loiterers, and they might seem like they just have a lower level of commitment to the Valar than the Vanyar and Noldor do. I think we need to remember, though, that their loitering in Middle earth is not necessarily a bad thing at all. Remember that Olmo, for one, never thought that the whole bring the elves to Valinor plan was a good idea, and there's quite a lot of evidence that he was right, and most of the rest of the Valar were wrong. The Teleri, by lingering in the forests and on the coasts of Middle earth, are doing a really good thing, and one which may actually be more in line with Iluvatar's intended purpose for the elves. It seems likely that Olmo was right that the elves were supposed to remain in Middle-earth, blessing it and helping to heal it. Okay, we now join our actual discussion, already in progress.
1: The static kind of place, and maybe that's, you know, the elves sort of get in trouble in Valinor, because it is, it is a, a static sort of place, and you get that feeling of uh, restlessness, and, and that's going to get them into trouble.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, you know, and that's a really interesting parallel. Um, because of course what that makes me think of is, you know, this idea, one of the, one of the medieval ideas, which is clearly operable in Middle Earth. Um, and this becomes most explicit in the, you know, I mentioned, um, I mentioned that, that, Story that, uh, that, I don't even know what to call it. Story? Passage? Essay? Bit? I don't know. Uh, that is the, the debate between Finrod and Andreth, uh, in Morgoth's Ring. I mentioned that a couple weeks ago. Um, in that, it, it is this, uh, this theme is very explicit. Um, but this is the, the medieval idea that, the human soul is not content with anything in the world because it is fundamentally not designed for the world. That humans are only pilgrims and wayfarers in the world, and that they don't—that um, they don't really belong here. Um, elves are different. Um, so you know, humans are only wayfarers in the world, and they depart to go. The elves know not whither, but wherever they do go. Ultimately, they end up in the place where they're supposed to be. They end up in the place which is sort of their real home. Elves do have a real home, and their real home is here, in the world, in Arda. Um, And of course, but it's interesting, the place which is called Elvenhome is not Valinor itself, but the island. The island that's almost over there, right? Um, Toleracea comes to be called Elvenhome. Um, and that seems to me an interesting kind of thing, that although they're invited over to be with the Valar and they live there and they're really happy there and, you know, they become blessed and and everything and they, and they you know, they, they get along great with the Valar, the home of the gods is not actually, you know, their sort of true home. Their true home is, you know, I don't know what, to be like 90% of the way over with the gods, but but not 100% over with the gods. Um and so yeah, I mean I think that that kind of that that kind of thing is definitely is definitely operable and you can see I mean so I think that you can make I mean I'd want to be careful about this um Laura that we obviously wouldn't want to go so far as to make it sound like he's being sort of just like simply being allegorical about this because I don't think he is. Um but but I think that we nevertheless can say that there is a that there is a parallel here that there is a strong um yeah, a strong parallel between the uh, you know a human's life on earth, you know ultimately going towards a heavenly destination, and yet, as you say, not necessarily hastening <laughs> towards it or that is quick to abandon the life on earth. there's things for them to do here, and the elve's relationship with middle Earth specifically.
1: Yeah, and, and also the Elves uh, probably realize they're not going to be able to come back either. So that's right. the other reason they're not hurrying to get right. there.
0: Right. Yeah, no, exactly. I agree. Um, yeah, and I mean, they... Now, you know, even that is interesting. Like, it's not necessarily an obvious part of the contract when they sign up to go to Valinor in the first place, right? It's not explicitly, it's not explicitly a one-way street it's not explicitly like okay if you come over you shall never be permitted to return um now we'll come back and look at sort of how this works um in a few weeks when we look at the the return of you know, the decision of the noldor to return so you know that'll sort of come up but um uh but it, it's 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 not yeah you know, and again here i go back to the argument of olmo again you know, it's not clear that the movement from Middle-earth to Valinor is the inescapable, unidirectional, and sort of ultimate trip of the elves. Um, they do seem to have some work to do in Middle-earth, and it seems like, you know, maybe, actually, yeah, that is part of what they're supposed to do. Um, Mike, go ahead.
1: Yeah, I was just going to comment on the uh, what I was thinking as the, the wandering of some of the groups of elves as they made their way across Beleriand. And for me, the nature of the wandering is what's most interesting about certain characters and certain people, peoples, I should say, in any of Tolkien's books. And I, it's sort of like a little thesis in my head right now, but I think it would be interesting to look at characters and groups and peoples who sort of strayed or wandered or take a a longer time to get where they need to be, from Gandalf through Strider, through different entire races of people that are more prone to wandering rather than not wandering, maybe such as the Hobbits. So uh, as I was reading that, I was connecting it in my head to the other groups or individual characters throughout the books that either wander or don't wander,
0: yeah and no that's that's great you know of course uh, that uh, is a wonderful paper which of course uh, has a title just ready and waiting for it right <laughs> not all who wander are lost right I mean how easy is that title right uh yeah right. no that's great that's great i I think that that, that that's very interesting because certainly um, it's really interesting to think about this wandering of the elves in conjunction with Something like Gandalf's wandering. Cause, you know, in a sense, Gandalf in Middle-earth is kind of like actually doing exactly the kind of thing that Olmo seems to be suggesting the elves should have been doing all along, right? Um, that is going about Middle-earth and helping to heal the, the, the harms established by Melkor and his followers. Um, now, of course, many of the elves are, are doing that too. It's not like Gandalf is alone and, you know, the, 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 the elves are not doing it. Um, but yeah, I mean that does seem to be, that does seem to be a pretty good model. No, that's great. Okay, so let's see. Let's uh, let's move on. You guys have are 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 so full of topics tonight. I want to make sure that we move along and to to make sure that we get to as many of these as we can. Um, let's see. Oh, uh, Mike, you had a, a question about about UNIN? I think you had just mentioned that you were wanting to, uh, that, that you wanted to, to just sort of confirm who, who Uin
1: is. Right, right. Just th- that name came up and I was blanking on who he was.
0: Right. Uin first of all, she's female. Um, she is uh, the, basically the, the, the partner of Ose. So both of them are the two sort of most most uh, uh, prominent of the Maiar who are affiliated with Ulmo. Um, so, uh, it, you know, it describes her briefly in the Valaquenta. Um, Osei is sort of, uh, all violent and, uh, you know, he's the one who sort of loves to make, you know, tempests and high seas and things like that. And, um, he also has this sort of sketchy past, um, with Olmo that he briefly, um, Melkor tried to corrupt him and to bring him over to his side and sort of offered him the entire realm of Ulmo if he would accept and Aulë was briefly tempted and briefly did rebel. Uenin was instrumental in bringing him back. Um so she's sort of his partner. Um she also um we're told is the sort of the patroness of mariners. You know, she's the one um the mariners respect Aulë but they don't trust him. So, you know, a uh, uh, a a uh uh someone who is going out on the sea is not going to be trying to, you know, sort of partner up with Ase, but Uinin, Uinin, you know, they would uh ask for help from. Um and this is very explicit with the Numenorians. The Numenorians uh dwelt long in the protection of Uinin. Um and if you read if you um read in the volume Unfinished Tales, um the story of Alderion and Arendis, one of the only long narrative stories that Tolkien wrote, um, long narrator, narratives that take place in Numenor before its fall. Um, <laughs> in Numenor before its fall, as if there are many narratives in Numenor after its fall. I mean, I guess maybe among fish. Uh, but anyway, uh, it, so it's a story of Numenor, um, of Alderion and Arendis, and they talk about in a lot. I mean, Alderion was a great sailor, and uh, his wife... Arendis, they have this problem. She always wants him to stay home and he wants to go out sailing. Um, and, uh, she, like, actually expresses it in terms of, like, being jealous of Uenin, Um, you know, that, that his devotion to Uenin is, is greater than his devotion to her. Um, now, you know, their marriage is kind of dysfunctional, but, um, that is Eldarion and Arendis's. But anyway, um, uh, uh, so yeah, anyway, that's who, that's who. That's who Uinin is. Um, but that's a, that's a good question. Please do not be shy to ask, uh, clarification questions like this because I promise, um, if you are finding, you know, references to a name and you can't immediately place who it is, like, I promise you that there are, like, literally millions of other people out there who also are, like, confused at that moment. So the more of those confusions we can clear up, the better. Um, good, good. Um, let's see. Uh, Chris, you wanted to talk about Inwe as High King. Yeah um my question really
2: it's not it's kind of a uh, a trivial question too but uh John kind of um asked it in a in a more intelligent way a little bit down below. Um I, my question was why is Ingwe considered the high king, you know, what makes him special? And uh John's made a good point as far as do we have any information on this hierarchy among the elves? It seems to me I read something in one of the Histories a long time ago that kind of referred to um, hierarchies among the elves, but uh, uh, I was wondering if you had any, if there was any information about that, and and again, and more specifically, what makes what made uh, Ingwe so special? Do we have any information on that?
0: Yeah, well, not too much. Um, I mean, one thing. <laughs> I guess the place where you start when ta- when looking at Hierarchy among the elves is with the simple, but I still think, but I think very important recognition of the fact that it exists. It exists all over the place. Like, there are persistent hierarchies among the elves. Um, in fact, we're, we are instructed to think in terms of hierarchies. Very consistently throughout the Silmarillion. And this is true, of course, not just among the elves, but even among the Ainur as well. You know, all this stuff about, you know, Aule and his people, right? You know, you've got, uh, you know, each of the Valar has clearly this sort of hierarchy underneath them um, as well. Of course, we see this... With with... the elves and the the Ainur,
2: it seems like... Definitely with the Ainur, but even with the elves, it seems like it's almost a natural order that they have these structural relationships. Mm-hmm. I guess they're mostly familial, at least among the leadership, but uh, um, it, it just seems like it just happens.
0: Right. No, exactly. Exactly. And, and and that is, I think, exactly what we can see among the Elves and among the Ainur as well. And this is why it's hard to answer the question, like, why Zinwei High King? Because... Um, well, we're, we're not told. It's not like there's an election, right? Um, I um, mean, you know, like, how did he become king? You know, I didn't vote for him. Um, well, you know, he just, he, he just is. And that seems like a terribly unsatisfactory answer. Why is he high king? Cause he is. Cause he is better than everybody else. Um. But everybody seems to recognize it. Right. Exactly. And that seems fine, really. I mean, that is, nobody has a problem with that. Um. Very rarely, very rarely will we see occasions in which elven hierarchies are questioned from within by other people. Now, sometimes it will happen, but when it does happen, it happens only in the cases of people who are obviously already corrupt. I mean, the Sons of Feanor are going to be causing troubles in this direction and everything um, down the road, but they're obviously, you know, way down the path... uh, Towards moral corruption at that point, um, but and you know you, the
2: incidences where it does happen are just remarkable because it doesn't happen very often. They really
0: stand out. Exactly, exactly. I mean, there's nobody among the Sindar who's going to rise up and be like single, yeah, whatever. I should be king, right? No, nobody <laughs> does that. And even among people, happen. you know, where you have people who are the heads of their own little hierarchies like like Cirdan you know who sets up his own like semi-independent little kingdom on the shore um at the falas so he is the the head of the falathrim again who elected him how, how did he become head of the falathrim well he just seems to be the greatest of them um and everybody as as you say everybody recognizes that however is there tension between him and Thingol no absolutely not because Thingol is held to be the high king of all of the sindar so Kyrodon and, and Thingol work together perfectly well and, and, you know, Kyrodon clearly has, sees himself as being under allegiance to Thingol and, you know, he's not gonna secede. He's not, it's, it's just not gonna be that kind of a problem. And I said, nobody has a problem with, with Ingwe and who he is. So, you know, this is something which is, I think, in some ways kind of hard to understand and even harder to sort of really internalize uh and like cuz this is so alien to the way in which especially i would say which all modern people think but especially modern americans think um you know we're not used to thinking of this kind this this idea of intrinsic superiority and it seems um it seems like a really kind of questionable thing but i don't think necessarily that it is um because um, you know, if it would you never have, work
2: well among... sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say maybe it would never work well among men because men are so short-lived that uh, that are always vying. It seems like somebody's always vying for a better position. Um, whereas the L's, they're in it for the long term. These maybe these relationships are established, and that's just. Like you said, just the way it is, and it continues.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I mean, it's, um, you know, people recognizing the relationship between those that are high in a hierarchy with those who are low in a hierarchy um, does not seem necessarily to be to be. Uh, <laughs> Again, it's this sort of sounds to a modern person, as that especially a modern American, as like an intrinsically corrupt situation. Like if you've got some people lording it over other people, um then obviously that must be a sign, right, that there's something wrong here. You know, that those people are setting themselves up and taking a lot on themselves and they're they're keeping down other people. But that really doesn't seem to be the case. That just is not how no. these these elves appear to operate. And I think that we have to be careful um with our very natural reactions to that kind of thing because they just, that just that seems to be fundamentally alien to the paradigm that, that the elves are clearly operating in. Um right. so as I say, the first thing about elven hierarchy is to recognize that it plainly exists and does not seem to be uh questionable. I don't think, anyway, that it seems to be questionable uh, morally. Um Dusty, you wanted to you wanted to, to contribute here? Yeah, I have more of a comment. There was originally seven dwarven kings that were each of the
3: fathers of their seven houses, which why not that the Elven Kings were the first of those kings, they were the first to wake up, and wouldn't couldn't that make them the ultimate father grandfather of each of their sub races? So they are directly all interrelated, interlinked.
0: It's it's certainly possible. Um You know, I mean, even, you know, one could possibly argue, even the fact that Aule made them that way, that is, like, that it occurred to Aule to, like, I'm going to make these seven fathers of the dwarves, and, like, all the, you know, uh, and, you know, these are going to be the first ones, and then they're going to be the heads of these seven different, like, dwarven kingdoms, um perhaps shows some kind of vague sense of what was going to come that he, you know, he had a kind of a vaguish idea just as he had a sort of a vague idea about what the children of Iluvatar were going to look like. And so he kind of got it mostly right. Although the dwarves look funny because they're, he didn't get it exactly right. Um, you know, that maybe again, you could say that the concept of hierarchy as it functions among the dwarves is therefore also in some sense, um, related to or akin to the hierarchy from there. I mean you can certainly imagine it's certainly not difficult to imagine that you know maybe Ingwe was the first elf to wake up, you know, maybe he's elf number 1, who knows, possible, quite possible. We don't know that, but but it, it's possible. Um you know, it's not that I think that it would necessarily go by seniority merely, but certainly in the times, you know, when we do see that sort of central king figure being emphasized, certainly with Elway, Finway, and Inway in their relationship with, um, with, uh, with their three peoples respectively. They do, uh, I mean, I think I used the word patriarch earlier because that's kind of what it sounds like. I mean, they are not only, uh, kings, but it's, it's not like they're literally the fathers of, of the whole people, but, um, but there is something i mean and this is you know this sense is certainly amplified um among the noldor since we're talking about his sons and his grandchildren um so we see you know the story of the noldor becomes um in a in a very uh in a very direct way the story of the family and descendants of finwe and so he certainly is the patriarch and father figure of of all of the noldor that we will spend the rest of this book with um but but i but i think even even apart from that fact um there does seem to be that that kind of patriarchal standing uh that these guys have and so it seems quite likely quite possible quite plausible that they also were elder like literally, elder than uh than the rest of them. Um, I can certainly believe that. Again, we don't have any evidence, but but I mean, I could I could I could go along with that. Did you want to add something else, Dusty? Or okay, no, no, Dave, go ahead.
4: Sure.
5: Um, this is going to take us a little off track, or at least prolong this uh, topic a little bit longer. But uh, we were discussing over in the chat window. I was wondering if maybe the sort of prevalence of monarchy or sort of hierarchy like that throughout all of Tolkien's works reflects um, some sort of – maybe this is taking too far – but reflects sort of Tolkien's own personal sort of feelings about um, uh, government. Because I I know on the one hand, he seems to have – pretty strong libertarian notions you see him throughout his letters he says that the most improper job for any person is bossing other people around and he seems to really like the shire which is sort of this almost libertarian paradise uh at the same time you know any government he that shows up there is monarchical and he obviously has a great deal of respect for sort of a proper and good and virtuous king um um and so i I was wondering if maybe the 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 sort of prevalence of monarchy reflects his feelings. And then um, uh, I'm going to steal this from Jason, but Jason proposed an alternative hypothesis, which is, if you look at this as a prehistory of our world, it might be somewhat inappropriate for democracies to be showing up this early in history.
0: Yeah. Well, and that's one of the things is that there's there doesn't seem to be I mean, what I'm tempted to say is there doesn't seem to be need for a democracy. Right? I mean, the point of democracies is to keep corrupt rulers from oppressing the people right when you've got uh, when you've got uh, monarchs or oligarchs in charge um, who are bad rulers and who are exploiting the people then there is a need for the people to rise up and you know defend themselves by having a say in government. I mean, this is kind of how democracy rises in some sense. Um, and, but the elves don't need that because in almost every case they have benevolent rulers. We will only see one bad leader among the elves. Now, there are, again, there are some of the prominent figures who are bad guys and who also have their own little hierarchies. I mean, each one of the grandkids of Finway is going to be, you know, in charge of a realm. And so we'll presumably have, you know, a little hierarchy under them and everything. And some of them are bad guys. But, um, but nevertheless, like, as far as like the Noldor in general, I mean, Feanor is the only one who's going to be, you know, like a demonstrably crappy leader of the Noldor as a people um but even he is not necessarily a bad leader in that sense that is in the sense of of really like abusing and exploiting the people he does bad things to some of them um but uh but anyway i mean he he he's, we're not going to see really sort of bad kings oppressive. go ahead
5: oppressive well, i was hmm? just saying he's i'm sorry to interrupt he's That's not great. oppressive um, in general, he he leads he misleads the people into doing dumb or bad things. But in general, the people are pretty much going along with it, right? Uh, or he he's successful in in convincing them to do it. Uh, but he doesn't he's not like he's you know throwing them in jail or. Levying heavy taxation on <laughs> Right, them. exactly,
0: exactly. The tax, the, the tax situation seems to be fine, you know, uh, a bad, decent legal system. No, exactly. I mean, that's, that's, uh, yeah, so, um, so it would be odd, um, it would be odd, it's hard to imagine any, I was gonna say any of the elves in the Silmarillion, but frankly, any of the elves, period, even the elves we meet, we meet in the Lord of the Rings it's hard for them to to imagine them participating in or desiring a democratic system um because i mean right. ultimately that's built on a desire for individual suffrage like there has to be people rising up and saying no i want to say in government be- presumably because i need to defend myself and my family and my interests and I, the elves they just don't because they don't seem to need to they don't seem to they don't they don't seem to want to they don't seem to need to
5: right well, it, so so, um, uh, <laughs> trying to push you to answer my question is it is it inappropriate to to read anything into this about Tolkien's feelings about government leadership, um, <laughs> that sort of stuff, or or is it or is it pointless to try and do that?
0: My attempt to dodge your question foiled. Um... <laughs> Okay. Well, Well,
5: you know, I think it's appropriate. I think it's fine if you want to say, "Eh, you know, you're reading too much into it. Don't worry about it." You know, because then the then the readers who might be wondering similar things can say, "Right, okay, I will quit reading things into it."
0: Well, okay. Because see, here here's here's the problem. I don't think I don't think you're reading too much into it. I don't think it's an inappropriate question to ask. Um. I am less confident that it's an appropriate question to answer if that <laughs> makes any sense at all. Um it's clear that the, well okay. See the danger the, the reason the reason that I am like b- manifestly uncomfortable in talking about this is that it it this starts to really approach the a, a, a dangerous situation of basically sort of taking something which is depicted in the book and sort of lifting uh, that uh, and saying,
5: mapping it onto the real world.
0: Right. This is what Tolkien really loved. This is what he really believed in. Um. You know, he was, he was so like hierarchy. I mean, it would be really easy um, to say, to, to look at this stuff and say he is like a pure, like pro aristocrat through and through. I mean like he just loves hierarchies. He lo- you know, he can't get enough of like the intrinsically superior, demigod like you know, aristocrats who are above everybody and like all of the commoners like couldn't be happier than when they're serving the benevolent aristocrats. One could easily Take this and say, like, see, like, Tolkien was just absolutely all about this. But as you've pointed out, it is certainly true. Many of his letters would give you an impression almost opposite to that. Um, yeah. you know, that, that really he is, like, an anarchical libertarian. Um, and I don't think I don't think that. I mean, I think that he does, in some sense, have sort of leanings in both directions. I don't think that he would have thought the two of them absolutely contradictory to each other. But, but it's it's just, it's. I I think it's it's it is perilous, (laughs) um, to do too much speculation about what this actually means about his own personal convictions. Also, because, in the end, I'm not sure how much it matters. That is, it's kind of reading the story. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of, I mean, of course, it's kind of interesting. It's hard to, you know, read Tolkien stories and love Tolkien stories and not be at all interested in Tolkien the person. And, you know, right. what were, you know.
5: But you have to walk a fine line.
0: Yeah, exactly. Like, that's fine. I and think that there's nothing there's, wrong with that. But if what you're maybe
5: ending up. Go ahead. The safest statement you can make about Tolkien the man from reading a lot of this stuff is just he likes stories. And he likes stories like these, particularly he's not especially fussed about what the government of the elves are, except insofar as it's a you know it works pretty good for telling stories in these circumstances
0: yeah, yeah, i mean it's and and certainly you know as i said this is there there's a way in which um this idea of aristocracy like this is one or of of these hierarchies within within the elves is one sort of almost purified, purified in, in in a couple different senses, actually, purified sense of some of the medieval traditions about aristocracy and about hierarchies among people. Um, whenever the medievals talked about hierarchy, they would sometimes talk like a king was an intrinsically just like different kind of being than a commoner. Um, you know they just it's not like a a king just happens to be like a dude who happens to be wearing a crown he's not just a dude like everybody else he is like genuinely different and this was a belief of course especially fostered by kings but in the middle ages you can also see at the same time that you will hear people talking like that sometimes it is also perfectly clear that they don't really believe it. In some sense, that is that you know that that they they recognize you know this this is like a, a cool idea and sort of theoretically yeah, but but actually we don't really see this in practice. And you can see them recognizing the gap between this theory, which looks great on paper and works out really well in their overall sort of analysis of the cosmos, which they saw the whole thing being hierarchical and they really like that. Um, but you know, in practice, it really didn't seem to work. Well, here you go. You know, so in one sense, you could say Tolkien's sort of saying then and say, "Well, okay, well, let's actually work that out." Except it, where it does work. You know, where where it is, it is, as I said, in a couple senses purified, purified in the sense of sort of being made made sort of simple and less complicated, but also sort of morally purified. Here, if you know, among genuinely. Among genuinely good people, you know, I think of the—that's you know the when he uses Tolkien uses that phrase about elves and the hobbits, right? You know, elves are and remain good people, capital G, capital P, right? Um, and that's they are good people, and we see them mostly. They're good, and so among good people, among these, um, genuinely morally good elves, um. Some exceptions, but generally they're very good, certainly better than the average people, um, the average human beings. Here's how that whole hierarchy thing would actually work out under those circumstances. So, um, you know, does that mean that? This is like the world that Tolkien really would have wanted to see created. I don't, I mean, that is like, would he have wanted to like strive to make this a political reality in England? I don't necessarily think so at all. Um, you know, when it came to practical politics, you know, he, he did seem to lean much more towards the libertarian end of things, um, which is in part an expression of not trusting, um, people. You know, although he seems to have this theoretical, at the very least, it seems pretty clear to be able to say that he finds the idea of hierarchy very appealing however um he doesn't actually trust it to work out in practice with real human beings bossing other real human beings right so well, so but but again it's 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 you know as i said it's hard and and um and also you know the other reluctance that i have is anytime if we start Sort of reading the stories, you know, as you you were emphasizing, it's important to recall them as stories and to be reading them as stories. And if we're reading them as, you know, nuggets of prose, which can give us insight into the personal beliefs and psychology of the author, uh, gosh, (laughs) Tolkien would have hated that. And, you know, he would have he would would have ripped to pieces any such approach to any work of literature uh, and been, of course, the more deeply uncomfortable with that approach to his own. Um, but Jason, you you uh, were wanting to contribute to this, and you were uh, in the text chat, have been a big contributor here, so
4: go ahead. Yeah, you actually stole a little bit of my thunder when you started talking oh, about the medieval view of kings. That's okay. Uh, I, I wanted to point out, though, that I think one reason maybe why moderns have such a reaction against the idea of monarchy uh, or hierarchy is that they have sort of this Louis the Fourteenth absolutist divine right conception of what monarchy is—that the king is the guy who bosses everybody around and oppresses the peasants and so on. Whereas, if if you go back to that earlier vision of kingship that you would have seen in the more uh, in the medieval period, or especially in Northern Europe, where the king, his primary function, a lot of Time seems to be simply as a, a judge, you know, to judge disputes between his subjects and is not really in the business of uh, bossing people around all the time. Right, right, yeah, no, exactly.
0: I mean, and I think of some of the, the, uh, my favorite medieval kingship story, um, is the story, uh, you know, which in like, it's unclear exactly how true it is. Um, though it does, I mean, there does seem to be some evidence to support it. I'm thinking of the famous story about Richard II in the peasants revolt. Um, you know, when, uh, the, 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 the people are marching on England and uh, on, on London rather, and all of London is in an uproar and it looks like the whole place is coming down and, and the young Richard II who has newly, uh, you know, ascended as a child to the throne, um, goes out among the people. So you've got these, 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 these rioters who are, who are, you know, sort of stampeding around London, demanding, uh, you know, just, you know, making these, these, you know, these demands and, and wanting to, 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 you know, as Shakespeare characterizes it, kill all the lawyers, uh, and, um, and wanting to, to, to take over. And the story is that the young king, Richard II, just rides out alone and unescorted among the crowds, uh, of, of the rebels. And that they respond in the presence of their king, their intrinsic respect for the king is so great that the rebels won't touch him, and that he, you know, he just, like, tells them all to come with him, and they follow him, and then they sort of sit down peaceably and, of course, end up getting, like, you know, captured, and uh the ringleaders tried and everything else later on. Uh But... But I think, we, but the important thing, the, you know, the important thing about that story is that this sense of like, even among, even among people who are in active rebellion against the government, so great is their intrinsic respect for kingship in general, and for their king in particular, that they won't harm Richard. Uh, and they, they will, they will follow him and do what he says, even though they were in the middle of rebelling when he, when he comes out to them. Um, as I say, that story, you know, people debate, and, you know, how much grounding that has in any kind of fact, but but as far as, like, the idea of kingship, I, f- I always find that story very evocative.
4: And, and whenever there is a revolt, it's never in name, at least, it's never against the king, it's always against the king's wicked advisors or people who are leading him astray. Right, right, yeah, and that was
0: why Uh, you know, the execution of Charles in the 17th century was such a big deal. You know, when we're actually gonna behead a king, that was a, that was, that was a big deal. Yes, as you say, and that was of course exactly what they were rising up against. You know, Richard, it's not that he was the problem yet. He was the problem later, but it's not that he was the problem yet. It's just that he was, yes, he was, he was being misled by those evil advisors. Um, so yeah, no, exactly. And and so we can see, as I said, I think like a purified version of that. We can see that working, in non dysfunctional ways, um, among the elves, um, and that seems to be good. That seems to be that seems to be fun. Uh, Joe, go ahead. You wanted to you wanted to add something here?
6: Yeah, two things, I guess. One thing. Uh, well, it's interesting. The kings in talking stories almost they always are willing to go into battle and serve the people. Like above all else, it's one of their primary things. That's something I kind of wanted to add in and something I originally wanted to point out was it's interesting how Fenway's sons and his descendants are all like especially special or really good at what they do. Um, Like they're the best at this or the most best looking or the strongest and best fighting. And then um, I wondered if that was just something that was related to elves being in their youth and they're so young that there's going to be the best people ever and then essentially that's going to go down through their they're heirs, and occasionally they'll be someone just as good. But I didn't know if that was just because of the elves were in their youth and it was like that, or they're just the best like, period ever for that reason.
0: Well, I mean, we do know that the elves, you know, it says the elves were greater in the beginning, and they kind of declined later on, so we're certainly not going to see them. I mean, and that's not just true of the elves. It seems to be true of pretty much everything. I mean, um Everything in Middle-earth declines and falls. Um, And there I was just uh, paraphrasing, uh, both translating and paraphrasing, a couple lines from The Wanderer, uh, the Anglo-Saxon poem. Um, There were a a, a couple lines about that when we talked about that in class last semester. I was like, that could be like the epigram for Tolkien's Middle-earth. Everything declines and falls. And um, so... That does seem to be a general rule, so it's not surprising in that way that the, the early, the earliest elves would be the greatest, um, and that those who came after them would not really be able to be nearly so great. Um, yeah, go ahead,
6: Joe. I uh, Well, also, I wanted to point out, like, uh, you know, Ingwe was the high, he's, he was the one held in reverence the most, right? Yes. Above, above the other elves. And then, well, then, uh, it just, it seems like out of Fenway there came, more of the greater people like when it comes to crafting and war, but that goes to show you that to the elves that's also not the most important thing in their life. It's about enjoying the beauty of things as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you get this the uh, the, the one other thing that we see about about Ingwe and about the Vanyar in general is that is their closeness with Manwe and Varda. Um and the really the really evocative fact of their geography. <laughs> you know, that is, okay, you've got the Teleri who come, and they set up in Sea off the coast for a long time, but then eventually they finally take the last step actually to go over to the mainland of Valinor, but they still set up their city, Al- Alquilande there at the coast. The Noldor and the Vanyar build the city of Tyrion upon the hill of Tuna, which is unfortunately pronounced Tuna. Uh, Martin Shaw tries to soft-pedal that by calling it Tuna. It's not. It's Tuna. Um. Anyway, Tyrion upon Tuna uh, is built by the Vanyar and the Noldor, and the Noldor stay there, and that's, it's like right in the middle. You've got, you've got the the Kalakirian, you've got the, 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 huge towering mountains that have been built up, um, to sort of be the wall for Valinor, but there's the one pass, there's the one gap in it, and the light from the trees pours out through this gap, and it's there, um, so still, you know, closer than the Teleri, um, but still not all the way in. They don't live downtown in Valmar or anything. The Noldor have their city still near to the sea, um, but closer in, and, you know, sort of right there on that borderline. Uh, the Vanyar, though eventually that's not enough for them. They move out and they move up, um, and they end up living on Tanequito. er excuse me. So here am I doing the the Martinshaw and mispronouncing it, Tanequito. They move up onto the onto the slopes of Tanequito itself, and there's Ingwe sitting at the feet of Manwe, uh, personally. So um, they that that geography shows. I mean, I don't know what what exactly does it show that they are more holy, that they are more pure, they're certainly more connected with Manway, and that's you know but that's a kind of a complicated thing. It's not like, well, since Manway is better than you know, the 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 Noldor spent all their time hanging out with Aule, and, you know, Aule is lesser than Manway, and so therefore obviously the Banyar are better. Um it's not quite so simple as that, of course, at all. But um anyway, you know, so I think that there's there's someone and I'm forgetting who it was now, um, who wanted to talk about the relationship between the Vanyar and uh and and Manwe before? Who was that? Was that John or Jason? It was somebody. Somebody whose name began with a J, which leaves us like five candidates, I think.
4: It may have been the comment that I made when someone asked why Ingwe was the high king and I thought that one possibility might be that Ingwe seemed to have this special relationship with Manwë and since Manwë is the leader of the Valar there might be some sort of similarity there I don't know
0: Yeah yeah no I mean I think that there does seem to be um well it's hard to see it as a coincidence that you know the the you know the regent of Aluvatar in in Arda you know that the the high king of the elves hangs out with you know the the sort of the parallel between the the top of the elven hierarchy and the top of the Ainur hierarchy um you know, both hang out together. And I think that that's, yeah, that can't be coincidental. Um, But it's clearly not just a kind of nepotism thing, right? Like, oh boy, you know, smart choice by Enway attaching himself to Manway. Boy, you know, that that really brought him right up to the top. It's clearly not like that either. I mean, they, um, he serves Manway and he uh, is connected with Manway because he and Manway are alike, it seems. You know, they, just as the Noldor are similar in many ways to Aule, and they have a lot in common with him. They share, you know, much of his passion for craftsmanship. Um, and so similarly, the Vanyar seem to share a lot in common with, um, with Manwe and not only Manwe, but with Varda too. Uh, remember that, that oh, I say remember, um, the three, the, the names that the three, I think actually there was this reference, wasn't there? Um, in the previous chapter, where the Vanyar are called the the Light Elves, and the Noldor are called the Deep Elves, and the Teleri are called the Sea Elves, um, and those three terms are also used in The Hobbit to describe the three of them. When we get this, um, you know, the, like the two paragraph synopsis of the Silmarillion that shows up in The Hobbit, um, when they get into Mirkwood, um, and those three. Those three names, the, the light elves, the deep elves, and the sea elves are used there also. So even the fact that the Vanyar are called the light elves also shows that they're connected with Varda also. Um, you know, remember she's the primary light person. Um, so, so anyway, I mean, I think that that's, that that's something. There's clearly, uh, you know, they are, they are similar. He is not a ruler because he's happened to, to cozy himself up to manway uh, rather he has joined himself to manway because the two of them are alike um and, and almost in a sense like a reflection of him um in small and we'll see this kind of parallel all over the place um that is that inway is the one inway is the one who's parallel to manway um and you know lesser hierarchies reflecting and echoing greater hierarchies just like the stories of the smaller people paralleling the stories of the bigger people. I mean, those are the kinds of patterns that we'll see constantly all over the place. Um, Yeah. Joe, go ahead.
6: No, I was just going to say, when you think about it, it kind of relates to, you know, the elves, uh, the children of Luthor come separately. I mean, they're not really straight connected with the Einar, but then again, you see similarities because, you know, the Einar came from Iluvatar as well, therefore, you know, it seems like interesting, different branches of the elves focus on different things, like uh, the Noldor and Owlet, it just seems like there could have been connections there inside of Iluvatar where it's just kind of all put together, because in the end, it all ties back to him. I thought it was kind of interesting when you look at it that way.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think that that is an interesting way to look at it. Yeah, yeah. Great, great. Well, here again, I feel like uh, I, I feel you know I have uh, you know Mac is helping me uh, maintain a list of uh, different topics you guys wanted to bring up, and I feel like we are progressing very slowly uh, through our list, but that's fine. There's a lot to there's, there's a lot to talk about here. Can I also just say in passing how much fun it is to be able to take the 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 leisure to talk about this book in this much detail? Um, I kind of went over. I, I glanced at my class notes. Uh, from the Tolkien class that I podcasted last spring. Um, and on my Tolkien class notes, we have not yet reached the end of Class 2 on the Silmarillion. Um, so I have, by the time we got to this point in the book, I would have spent less than two hours total of class time on the whole book so far. And we've now spent, you know, this is what, episode six. So, you know, we're going on like 12 hours on that same amount of time. Um, and yet I still feel like, oh man, we're following, we're following way behind. We're never going to get a chance to finish this five page chapter tonight in two hours. Um, it's, uh, it's very cool. I, I, I have been, uh, I have been really, uh, enjoying this and the more i was thinking about that the more uh uh the more i wanted to, i was just sort of thinking wanting to pause to sort of uh uh emphasize how much i uh, have been enjoying this opportunity uh it feels it feels uh, very self in, well not self-indulgent but very indulgent um, mike go ahead
1: to come back again to this the discussion we were having about Ingway and how um, you know, we might feel some sense of frustration that we don't understand uh, how or why he was elected to be High King of the Elves. And my reading of that is that, you know, for me, Tolkien, when he describes Hobbiton, describes Hobbiton in detail as a world of contracts and lawyers. There are politicians, there are estate sales, there are elections, and we understand mechanically how everything works, and we're meant to and for me the fact that there are gaps that are not filled in and at at this level of the story just i think highlights and reinforces that you're never going to know we're, we're not meant to know there's some things that we're never going to know this is not hobbiton this is a completely different realm and that you sir i sir, as a reader i'm accepting of that
0: yeah yeah no i think it's a really important thing to remember because you know, it's like a smaller scale version again of what we were talking about way back in the Ainulindale, right? We were talking about, you know, when we see the Ainur interacting, and we're hearing about the music and their interactions with Iluvatar. Well, we sort of recognize fundamentally. We can't really picture or envision what that was actually like. So we're kind of being given some metaphorical ways to, that, in which maybe we can get some kind of a dim understanding of what must have been going on on those levels. Well, you know, even here too, the same is true. Now this is, you know, since this is an elvish narrative, we're getting, uh, we're getting this told from an elvish perspective, but there's still those elements which, um, which sort of remind us, you know, can you not relate to this? You're not supposed to be able to relate to this. It's, it's perfectly normal that you can't relate to this. No. You'd probably don't think about your leaders this way. We wouldn't pick our leaders this way. We wouldn't relate to our leaders this way. But, but you know, that's us and we're different. Um, and yeah, as you say, this, you know, it's, it's, it's something that we, that we do just really need to accept. Um, and, you know, it is supposed to be alien. It's supposed to feel alien as a, human being reading this elvish story um we should not be able to be really kind of in sync with it all the way through and i think that that that's not only okay um that that's really kind of how it was uh how it was supposed to be um how we should be looking at it so i do think that that's really important to remember go ahead
1: Yeah, I would just flip that around. Imagine if there was, I think if there was more detail about the procedure or how Ingwe was elected to be High King of the Elves, you would lose something. Unless it was done, you know, masterfully and in just the right tone. I mean, it would be difficult to do without sort of breaking down the mystery and and sort of mechanizing the whole thing.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. Um, It's, uh, I mean, You know, And this really also just goes to, in general, one of the things, and I would put this, like one of the, I don't know what, top three, top five things that I think Tolkien does so well, just does best. Some of the things, you know, if I had to make a short list of the things, what is it about Tolkien's writing that makes them so powerful, so evocative, so enduring? This would be on my short list. That is his ability to create stories and create these myths that he never tells you know the way that he will just drop a reference to this mythic figure and you get this sense of you know so like this sense of there is looming out there ingwe the high king of all the elves um sitting at the feet of manwe and just like the the iconic power of that idea and it is the more powerful for not being told. And there are so many times that Tolkien does this, he gives us either these glimpses of these really fascinating stories that he doesn't tell, or, you know, these references to these, uh, uh, to these often very high and lofty, uh, uh you know, figures that we never meet, uh, and never get any more detail about. And I totally agree with you. If we were to, uh, the, uh if we were to get a description of like the Elven Caucus, um, you know, at which this, at which this happened, yeah, it would be really destructive. And I would also say in passing, you know, I've been, as we've been going through, I've also been, um, uh, trying when I've had time to be rereading, uh, the Book of Lost Tales too. I've just, I've been, it's something I've been wanting to do anyway. So I've been kind of doing that a little bit as we go along. And one of the things that I notice, you know, if you, if you, you know, when you compare and contrast, the printed Silmarillion that we're reading uh, with his earliest drafts in the book of lost tales. That's why I keep re- referring to them because I've just been rereading them lately. Um, one of the things that you can see is he, he it's, it's much more spare. Um, there is much more narrative and much more detail given in the book of lost tales version. And there are many times when I really like it. And there are some, sometimes when I actually like the, the, the book of lost tales version better, uh, but there are also times when he gives too much information. Um, You know, I'm thinking, for instance, about, again, one of the conversations we had last time when we were talking about this, the sparseness of the details on the war with Melkor, when they go and they take Melkor and they capture him, um, and they, you know, like, who's attacking, what's going on, how does that work out, and we get almost no information about that in the final version. Well, in the Book of Lost Tales version, we get actually a pretty detailed story. Um but in the end, it is a much lesser, so we get way, way more detail than we need or than we, than I want, actually. Um, you know, we get like the, you know, the policies and the scheming and they end up having to sort of deceive Melkor and they, um, it's, you know, it, it's, it, it is not, doesn't have, I, I think anyway, this, that, that version of it doesn't have near the mythic power, um, that the, like, one paragraph version has in the printed Silmarillion. So there's definitely, I think that that's a really important trend, that that's, it's just a, to me, a very fundamental, uh, a very fundamental thing about, uh, about Tolkien's writing. In general. Yeah, Mattis made a comment that the, uh, the Elven Caucus would have uh, made the Council of Elrond seem very brief. Yeah, I think it's actually important to remember Bilbo's comment in the Council of Elrond, right? When he says, like, you know, elves thrive on speech alone and dwarves endure great weariness. Um, you know, there's, there is that sense of like, you know, hey, um, guys, let's not forget that some of us are mortal here. Maybe we shouldn't, you know, be sitting here and talk we're not actually going to talk for a century here, are we? Like, you know, so yeah, there's, there's uh, uh, a, that, that's, it's uh, kind of fun.
1: And actually the fact that Bilbo makes that point is that also because Bilbo comes from a place in a culture where you actually have to have elections and politicians and lawyers and wills. And he's, he's, he needs to push them to get to the point. Whereas these other cultures come from a place where their decision making is completely different.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, yeah, it, yeah. Bilbo wants to call the question. Um, no, exactly. Um, and I think that that's, uh, um, yeah, 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 yeah. No, we can definitely see that operating. Let's see. Um, a couple of you have been wanting uh, to talk about the relationship between the Teleri and the oceans. Uh, which is, I think, a really interesting... They are the Sea Elves, after all. I think that's an interesting question. Joe, I think you were the one who initiated this topic.
6: Yes. Um. There's something I noticed. It seems, you know, all elves hold the stars in high reverence. I mean, the stars, just the first thing they saw, they absolutely love them. But then, you know, the Teleri, instead of, you know, a bunch of them, instead of going to see the Valar, I mean... um. It's instead, you know, they just get focused on the sea so much, and they, like, never leave it. I mean, they're always around it. And I was just wondering if they had more reverence for the sea than they do for the stars, or if it's really tight, or if they still have more reverence for the stars. That's just something that I didn't think was very clear, and I thought it would have been interesting if the elves separated in that way.
0: Yeah, I mean, well, I, I think that there's there's definitely something in this. And again, I would go back to, you know... Valinorian geography, as I said before, you know, you've got the Vanyar who continue, uh, you know, moving onwards and, you know, onwards and inwards and upwards until they have a, they established their halls on the, the lower reaches of Tenequito itself. In other words, they are clearly, in the end, choosing the light over the sea we're told that even in the hearts of the vanyar the love of the you know uh, the 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 love of the sea is is inspired by olmo when they when the when the vanyar and the noldor are standing there on the shores of the sea and they're a little bit nervous about this whole ocean thing and the ocean crossing and then olmo uh plays his horns and then that fear in their hearts is turned to to to, to desire so that desire for the sea happens to everybody but certainly uh, I, I almost flippantly said the Vanyard, get over it. Uh, but I, I don't think that's quite fair to say. But uh, but anyway, we we do not see there seeming to be any real conflict in their hearts. They choose the light, no question. The Teleri are on the other end of that. And the Noldor are right in the middle, uh, geographically in the middle, ideologically in the middle of this question it seems, but the Teleri are kind of definitely still pointed in that direction. Does it mean that like they don't care about Varda all that much? No, I don't think so. Um, but certainly, it is not their preoccupation. Go ahead, Joe.
6: Let's go down. Do you think it would be possibly because of a? Oh, uh, that. Dusty is pointing this out currently right now, so I do not want to steal from him. So if Dusty <laughs> wants to take this, I will let him take it.
0: <laughs> yeah, Dusty. Go ahead. I know this was something that you were thinking about a while before too.
3: Just the, the longing for the sea that every race has based on the music of the Iluvatar or the Einar when they were singing, because it says specifically several times that, that that is the only place where you can really hear the echo of the music.
0: Yes, yes. And the, and remember that Ulmo was the one of all of the Einor who was most skilled in music um and yes and in, and it is in water that you can most clearly hear the echoing of the music of a luvatar so i agree and and the significance of that observation i think coming back to basically the 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 paradigm of the question that joe has raised you know if we are we to see this as a kind of um if we're to see this as a kind of like Stars versus sea? Question. You know, is there some split in loyalty? Which, of course, then seems to beg the question: Is one better than the other? I mean, after all, the Vanyar are the are the top of the Elven hierarchy, right? So does that suggest? And the Teleri seem to be the ones that are down at the bottom. Does this mean that the love of the ocean is significantly inferior than the love of the stars? And I don't necessarily think so. For exactly the, I mean, we. Dusty's point. I would take Dusty's point to suggest quite well, not exactly the reverse, but I would I would take it to suggest that clearly it is not a low thing. It's not a bad thing. It's not a corrupt thing to love the sea. You're not just loving a second best thing. Um, there is something. It's very different. Well, it, I, I think there's more on this though. I don't think that we've we've really sort of finished probing this yet. How would you guys characterize the difference between loving the stars and loving the music? If the music is associated, if if rather, if the sea is associated with the music, what are the stars associated with then? Any thoughts? Anybody? Don't be shy. Go ahead, Chris.
2: I'm sorry, I hit the wrong button. <laughs> I don't have my comment in order yet.
0: <laughs> okay, okay. Oh, so, and Jason uh, Jason missed the question, and Dave. Come on, guys, pay attention. Um, uh, no, the the question was, if we have this paradigm, which I think, you know, which Joe has raised, and I think is, is a really interesting one, that is on the one hand, the love of the stars, which the Vanyar seem, seem to be the people who are kind of in the forefront of, in that they're actually living there on Tenequita with Manwe and Varda, and then you've got the love of the sea on the other end with the Teleri, who are down on the shores and are focused on the ocean, um, and seem, as Joe has suggested, to, if not, like, have diverted their loyalty away from, 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 you know, from Varda and the reverence for Varda that we're told all of the elves have as the people of the stars, um, Yeah, never, it's not like they've switched allegiance or something. But anyway, they seem to be more focused on the love of the sea. Um, we, you know, Dusty has suggested love of the sea seems to be connected with the love of the, with, with the music itself, the music of Illuvitar. We have that connection established. But what about the stars? What do we make of the other end of it? What are the stars? What are we then to associate the stars with? And so how can we build a sort of more detailed comparison and contrast between this love of the stars and love of the sea and how do they go together and all that stuff? Chris, go ahead. Well, I have had
2: a change of thought. Um, at first, I was thinking that the stars and, and the, uh, the sea are just both manifestations of the, of the music and it's not really uh, being disloyal to one or the other in order that, that they switch and more concentrate on the sea. It's, there's nothing negative about that, but it almost got me, you, the way you phrased the question last, could the stars be more indicative or representative of maybe Iluvatar or the flame imperishable, or something like that, uh, which may be yeah. a little bit more pure than the music
0: itself? Certainly, in the sense that the light, especially coming through Varda, who has the light of Iluvatar you know in her own face, so yeah, I mean uh uh you know whose whose face shines with the light of Illuvatar. um certainly light does seem to be connected with Iluvatar himself, and I think that you're right to recall the flame imperishable here uh in the same way um you know light certainly has that very fundamental um very fundamental significance. Dusty, go ahead. You wanted to add something else? Somewhat
3: off-topic, but the sea has the music of the Aenar, the trees and the light of Varda, but what about the third somewhat group of elves? You've got the sea elves, you've got the light elves, but the earth elves are the ones that revolt because there's not, not as much direct, Recall to the music and the light—is that the reason the Noldor were much more apt to take off and leave, even against the ban of the Valar?
0: It's a really good question. I mean, it's a really good question, and I don't think—I don't think it's necessarily a question of that. What we see. Well, okay. What I would say is a conspicuous pattern is forming now we know the noldor are going to screw up um we should probably wait to talk about this too much because it hasn't happened yet the the full, the, the full screwing up has not yet occurred um but we know it's going to happen um and as i said a, a conspicuous pattern is emerging um there are there seems to be something that all of the people we have seen screwing up so far have in common that is the noldor of all of the people of the elves, are the main ones who screw up. Of the good Valar, the one who comes closest to screwing up is Aule, uh, in the chapter that we read. Of the, you know, the Ainur in general, the one who primarily screws up is Melkor. Like, what do they have in common? All of them are makers. All of them are seeking. You know, Aule wants to make things, and he loves making things. Melkor loves making things, and he wants to. He wants to have creatures to serve him, uh, and to be under him. He wants dominion. Um, but he wants to make things. He looks at the void and is impatient of its emptiness. We're told at the beginning, um, being a maker. I mean, we know, you know, that Tolkien says in many places being a maker is a good thing, but it's dangerous. It's dangerous. Um. Yes, as Brandon has just quoted the passage, which is going to come back a lot in the Silmarillion to be to beware of loving too much the work of your own hands. I mean, that's um, that is the danger that we will see again and again. It leads Melkor astray. It almost leads Aule astray. It's gonna lead Feanor astray. Um, and so I think there is a way in which, and I think the way I would characterize it, the love of the Noldor. Is one which, at least potentially, is less humble than the other two. If you are just sort of focused on and appreciating the beauty of the music as it is echoed through the sea and through the waters, you're not thinking about yourself. You know, you're not focused on yourself. That is not in any way sort of an intrinsically self aggrandizing. Love, um, that's a humble love. You are submitting yourself to the music. You're not thinking about yourself at all. Same thing with the light. If you're contemplating the light, um, so maybe that is some sense loftier. Maybe, um, you know, as Dusty suggests here, you're, you're you're sort of in some still at a remove or two, but you're you're in some sort of indirectly contemplating the face of Illuvatar himself. Well, still, you're not thinking about yourself. With the Noldor, when you make something, when you are a maker, you. I mean, at least there's the greater temptation to think of yourself, um, and to be greedy, and to be possessive. Um, whereas, what, like, are the two are going to be possessive of the ocean? Uh, I mean, that doesn't seem likely. Um, certainly, again, that temptation is not going to be really, really the same. Um, you know, Dusty has just typed, you know, do the Noldor, take a bite from the Tree of Knowledge. Kind of. I mean, we're told they are greedy for knowledge. They seek ever to know more and more and more. Um, now I want to be careful there. We should wait. The, the possible parallels between the fall of the Noldor and the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, I want to save that till we get to that chapter because we don't have enough data really to talk about that. But I promise we'll get back to that because I do think that that's really an important connection. Um, but uh, but several of you have been also wanting to contribute, and I've been neglecting you. Elizabeth, uh, go ahead.
4: Uh, yeah, just going back to the question about the elves and the light, um, if I recall correctly, it was the kindling of the stars that actually originally woke the elves. So- that in a sense it didn't give them life of course because Luvatar did but it I guess brought them to life I guess or, or like I said woke them up so I was thinking that that special connection they have with the stars would uh would explain the connection that they have with light and with the stars
0: yeah yeah no I mean it's it's clear that it is a fundamental I mean even again it's it's their name also. I mean, and names, names very important in Tolkien. Um, I mean, they're, they're the people of the stars. So yeah, there is this fundamental and intrinsic connection between them and the stars. And I'd also point out as well, by the way, you know, I said that, um, I, I, I do like Dusty's, uh, comment his reminder about the connection between light and Iluvatar and the imperishable flame and all that stuff. Um, But remember, you know, I just said that it, you know, it's a couple removes from Iluvatar himself through Varda. But of course, that's also kind of interesting and kind of conspicuous. One of those levels of remove from Iluvatar is a sub creative one that is Varda as a maker is making the stars. So she's not just transmitting it. She's not only a mirror herself. It's not like by looking at the light of Varda we are looking at the light of a Luvatar bouncing off of Varda as if she were this kind of passive thing which is merely reflecting the light of a Luvatar. She's not at least the stars are not that kind of a passive reflection. They are her craftsmanship. She makes the stars. That's why, you know, at this moment she's given a new name. She's called the Kindler, right? The one who brings the stars to light. So, so that actually I think is, is interesting and at least potentially significant, um, especially in the light of, uh, the implications that I've just been making about the, uh, temptations connected with sub-creation for the Noldor. Uh, light and the love of light, um, is not wholly free of this. Dave, go ahead.
5: Um, I wanted to, to – sorry to force us to jump around. I wanted to revisit the point about making and how – I don't want to say making leads people astray, but a lot all the people who seem to go astray appear to be makers. And right. I was wondering to what extent – um, that relates to subcreation or the subcreative tendency, and if is there something we can see where at the, on the one hand subcreation is is sort of almost the most wonderful kind of um, participation one has with the divine. Uh, it's this wonderful impulse, um, right? Uh, and yet, at the same time, it's also highly dangerous and risky. It's the it's it's if you get too into it, it can lead you astray. And then, of course, we launched off into a debate about what is subcreation, what's the difference between creation, subcreation, and simple handiwork, craftwork, um, that kind of stuff. So I don't know which of those points you want to address, but uh, what I'm most interested in is to the extent that that what the Noldor are doing is a subcreative impulse and same thing for Melkor and ale and some of these other people who quote unquote go go astray what what is it about that tendency that that is so dangerous and yet at the same time we certainly wouldn't want to say a sub-creative impulse is bad It's not. yeah it's, it's obviously good right
0: yeah no exactly i mean and i guess the first thing that i would say um as sort of as as the setup to answering that question, there have been a couple times in the last few weeks. Um, one of them was here. I think one of them was maybe in a call-in session that I did recently. <laughs> Um, but anyway, you know, I've made reference to the fact that Tolkien is just, is one of the things that I find so remarkable about him is his ability to look at both sides of things and to, to really sort of see the whole picture and not to oversimplify issues and just consider one side of the question or one manifestations of things. And I think that this is an excellent, excellent illustration, um, because there are few things that he is more emphatic about in his writings then that subcreation is a good thing right i mean the whole poem mythopoeia is like resounds with that you know he you know he refuses to you know to cast his own small scepter down right i mean it's uh he is defiant in his maintaining that it is not only okay but it is good to be a subcreator so you've got that on the one hand but on the other hand You also have, you know, this trend, you know, this trend that we've been talking about, which is very clear. uh, Sub-creators go wrong. And it's not, uh, they don't go wrong despite their sub-creation. They go wrong through their sub-creation. So he sees both of those things, and he emphasizes both of those things. And I think, for me, the thing which really resolves this, the thing which sort of shows how those things fit together, is what Aule says to Iluvatar. Um When he talks about being the child of his father um, and that he characterizes how he errs in being presumptuous, right, that on the one hand, there's nothing wrong with him being the child of his father. And he puts that forward as not exactly an excuse, but an explanation. Right? I'm not trying to mock you. I am just trying. I am your child and I am the way that you've made me and I am like you because I am from your thought. Um, and so I am, was just fulfilling all those things, but yet presumption is also the word he uses. He goes too far because he, because his actions are like the actions of a Louvatar because he, because he, Aule, like, all human beings, Tolkien argues in Mythopoeia, is made in the image of a maker. Um, therefore, he has this impulse, but it also sets him up for possibly going astray. Because if you try, because there's a fine line between what he does and what Melkor did. What Melkor does is try to set himself up in place of a Luvatar, To say, you know, I do what you do. And actually, I, I, I just want to take over what you do. Right? I want to take unto myself uh, the authority to be God, and not just to be like God in service of God. Um, and you know, so presumption is the is the sin that Aule commits, and humility is the virtue that he demonstrates, which leads Iluvatar to um, be merciful to him. In response, um, and so that's what I think is so important about this—the way in which we see not just the fact that subcreating peoples go uh, wrong sometimes, but that it seems to be a very genuine and a very consistent danger—is because there is something divine about it, um, and it's its divine nature which makes it both so good but also so dangerous because it makes it easy to lose sight of the fact that you are not, in fact, God. Um, Ah, and it's the
5: attitude with which people do it that seems to be particularly important. Uh, Which, if I recall from a long time ago when I called into your show and we talked about attitudes toward death um, and some of the different ones, I remember you making the same point there that that really the distinguishing factor in the proper attitude toward death is humility yeah. uh, versus pride. And that seems to be popping up here again. Humility, you know, subcreation with humi- humility, not humidity, humility is good. <laughs> subcreation plus pride or presumption or the desire to dominate it, others, bad.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, and it's, and though, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, though, I, I, I'm sort of tempted to say that that desire for dominion is not necessarily identical with, though certainly related to this, because that is, I would separate the desire from the desire for dominion from the kind of presumption that Aule shows in pure form. I don't think, I think Owley is genuinely not guilty of yes. the desire to have dominion over other beings. Um, right. But he is guilty of presumption. And so I think that that sort of shows an interesting case. Now, of course, in many people, it's the same. I mean, with Melkor, those two things are like, you know, hand in hand. But, um, but right. I think that Owlay shows that they, that they are separable. So I wouldn't identify them exactly.
5: Oh, no. But I think what may tie them together to some extent that's at the root of them could be pride or um inappropriate yeah. levels of pride.
0: Yeah, no, no, exactly. No, I, I do uh I do definitely agree with that. Um Yeah, 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 definitely. Um well we are coming up against our traditional ending time and uh we still have like five questions that I haven't answered, not to mention uh about three other topics I wanted to talk about too. Um let me close because I think we we do we we should close. Um, but I think that one last thing, one last sort of topic that I want to bring up. I want to come back to names uh, here at the end. Um, and you know, I mentioned at the beginning about sort of not being too worried to try to keep track of every name. And there, I was talking about the the names of the actual individual people um, in the family tree of Finway there. Um, But I want to say something sort of similar, but just related to the the larger issue of, like, the names of the different subdivisions of the elves, which really kind of explodes um, between the last chapter and this chapter. Um, And I want to kind of point to a general principle, which I hope will be helpful in trying to um, not get buried under names and not get too discouraged when confronted by this wall of names, which it seems, or at least um, the persistent names as they keep coming in. Because, I mean, with the elves, with the divisions of the elves, and we sort of went over this last time, you know, and some of it is okay. Like, okay, so first we have the initial division between the Eldar, who go to Thalinar, and to to... Velenor and the Avari who stay. Okay, fine, fine, we can keep that straight. The Eldar and the Avari, all right, no problem. Um, then, okay, of the Eldar, they're divided into the three peoples, the Vanyar and the Noldor and the Toeri. Okay, 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 fine, that's fine too. Now, we also remember the basic categories of the Kalaquendi and the Moraquendi, you know, those who have been to the Light and those who have not. Okay, all right, that's not too difficult, it's starting to kind of complicate things, but okay, we're still safe. When we get to the endless, seemingly endless subdivisions of the Teleri, it starts getting maddening, and I think that's exactly like where many people just like drive off a cliff when it comes to sort of keeping track of what's going on in the Silmarillion. Um, I mean, okay, so. Some of the Teleri become the Sindar, and some are called the Nandor. Some of them are still called the Teleri, I guess, so they're like a subset, but they're also, like it's the name of the whole, but also the name of a subset. Um Some of the Nandor eventually come to be called the Lyquendi, and uh some others become the Philothrim who follow Círdan. Um and some of them name themselves randomly, like they call themselves the Egloth, the Forsaken People. Um... Like, are those Sindar? Is that a subgroup of the Sindar? What are we talking about? Anyway, I mean, this, the, these are the kinds of things that I think make people's heads spin trying to keep all of this straight and, and sort of map things out. Um... And what I would say here, like with the individual people, you don't have to keep it all straight. And especially if you're reading The Silmarillion for the first or second time, I would urge you, honestly, don't even try. There's time for that. Come back and read it a third, fourth, fifth, sixth time, and then, you know, then will be plenty of time to make sure that you are working out all the nuances of the relationships, you know, between the Nandor and the Lai Quendi. But, um what I would urge you to pay attention to, but I'd also don't think it's, you can't just skip over it either because names are very important in Tolkien's stories, but that's how I would urge you to pay attention to it. That is to pay attention to the significance of it in the stories. Um, the giving of names is often real, is usually really important. Often the giving of a name marks a particular event. Um, When, when something happens, when, uh either an event has happened to a certain people, which is sort of a defining moment for these people, or when, you know, this sort of cataclysmic event occurs, whether it be like a split within the people or, or something, that moment, that, that really important or defining moment, is usually marked with the giving of a name. Um, and so, you know, we can see that, for instance, with the that business with the Egloth, the Forsaken People. That's the name that... The people who stick around, you know, searching high and low for Elway, uh, for Thingol, when he goes off and is, you know, standing there with Melian for however long. Um, While they're searching fruitlessly for him, they call themselves uh, the Egloth, the forsaken people. Um, Whatever, if you forget the name Egloth, it's fine. It's actually never going to come up again. You will never need to know that ever again. It's not going to be mentioned. What's important, though, is what that moment and what that name that they choose shows us about them. It's part of the story. In fact, that's an instance where that a story is told entirely by that name alone. We never get, like, a narrative of the elves who stayed and searched for Elway. We get, what, like, one sentence about that? Two sentences about that? But we get the name. And through the name, we get a glimpse of this whole story that they have. Um, why do they call themselves the Forsaken People? Do they mean that Elway has been forsaken and they are the ones who are not going... So, like, they are being forsaken with Elway, you know, since they're staying to look for Elway and the rest of the Teleri are moving on. Um, so they've been forsaken by the Teleri? Well, that seems a little harsh. I mean, they chose to stay behind. Nobody forced them. No one's like, we're kicking you out of the Teleri. Um, but yet... You know, this is how they identify themselves. So you can sort of see, it's, 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 I guess it is very evocative in sort of their own attitude, their own mindset, their own sense of what's going on. And then, of course, the Egloth, they're not gonna, you're, you're not gonna see that name again because they cease to be called that Cause eventually they find him. Elway's gonna come out of the woods, uh, you know, hand in hand with Melian and say, hey, everybody, like, I've, uh, um, not only found myself really you know, let's be honest, I found myself a really awesome wife, but also I've gotten a pretty serious upgrade, too, um, and the light of Melian, the the light of Valinor, which is reflected in Melian like a mirror is now, like, shining out of, you know, is secondarily reflected out of me, and, like, I am, you know, transformed into greatly increased awesomeness, and they're all happy now, and, you know, they're not the forsaken people anymore, so they cease to be called the Egloth. But again, that moment is really interesting. So, when somebody gets a name don't you don't have to write it down you don't have to keep a list you don't have to you know there there's not going to be a quiz on this It's okay not to be always keeping track of it, but don't just skip it don't let it go by. Ask yourself what's the function of this what's the emphasis that we see um in the in the people themselves or at this moment at this character? This is of course going to be most pronounced, this trend is going to be most pronounced at times, almost comically pronounced when we get to the story of Turin Turambar, who's going to receive, I think I counted something like eight names over the course of the story, some of which he gives himself an important, and and almost always their names, which are attached to a particular phase of his life or a particular event that has occurred. Um, You know, these, that's, that's, that's where these names come from. So they're very important for that reason. But don't just try to memorize them. Don't just try to keep track of all of them. So I'll end with that general that general piece of advice. Um, and uh, and and we'll um, we'll next time, uh, we might have a chance to come back to some of these questions that we didn't get a chance for uh, here, certainly you know, this narrative isn't going to jump around wildly. We're going to be still talking about a bunch of the same kinds of things next week. So, uh, hang on to the questions that you had that we didn't get to, and we'll see if we can work them in next time. Thanks a lot, everybody. Have a good week. Feanor next week. I'm very, I'm, I'm very excited. Feanor and the Silmarils. That'll be a good time. Have a good night. Okay, in the next seminar session I post to the feed, we will be discussing of Feanor and the unchaining of Melkor. Don't forget to join us this week on Wednesday night at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for our live broadcast, when we will be starting our discussion of the cheerful and lighthearted story of Turin Turambar. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.